All right, Nick. So, um, you know, I feel like as I'm getting to the end of my fellowship, I still feel like I need to go back and remind myself about all of the general OBGYN topics as well as some primary care stuff. So how do I do that? Yeah. You know, our friends at the OBG Project actually have a new sister website that's come out called the PC Med Project or the Primary Care Med Project um, that focuses in on a lot of things from medicine that we may have forgotten and probably that our family medicine and internal medicine listeners completely remember, but they just need a better resource to be able to get those bullet-pointed summaries. Yeah, as I'm looking through this website, I see a ton of great information. It looks like they've also broken this down into specialty areas, so not just your normal alerts and things like that, but also looking at review of cancer screening, if you need to like look at some endocrine topics, even some dermatology topics. This is really great for anyone who wants to review some of your basic primary care subjects. So definitely check out the PC Med Project at pcmedproject.com. But if you're an OBGYN resident, remember too that you can get the OBG Project and OBG First as well as that resident core curriculum absolutely free heading to our website at www.creagsovercoffee.com, checking out our sidebar and getting signed up. Hi guys, welcome back. This is Nick. This is Faye. And this is Creogs Over Over Coffee. Coffee. So Faye, today we're back again to continue this five-part saga in diabetes. Um, So in terms of today, we're going to start talking about something I don't think we spend a lot of time thinking about in OBJN, but that we should be familiar with, which is treating pre-existing diabetes without insulin. Um, So what are our learning objectives today? Yeah. So today we're going to understand the goals of treatment of diabetes. We're going to describe the importance and benefit of lifestyle modification in diabetes control. And finally, we're going to review the varying medications and mechanisms for treating diabetes, particularly type 2 diabetes, um, of course, with a particular focus on OBGYN-specific issues associated with these medications. So Nick, start us off. First of all, what are some of our treatment goals for diabetes? Yeah, so I think one of the things that with chronic diabetes that we don't talk a lot about is really what are we shooting for? Um, I think generally speaking, most people would get the idea that once someone is diagnosed with diabetes, the goal is to improve their glycemic management. Um, But the ADA recommends a general target in someone with either type 1 or type 2 diabetes to aim for an A1C of 7% or better. What does that mean? Well, an A1C corresponds to an average estimated glucose of 154 milligrams per deciliter. So again, that is your average glucose throughout the day. So obviously there's room for improvement on that 7%. But 7% kind of is chosen because an A1C drop of 1% when you're above that corresponds to really important improvements in those microvascular outcomes. And there's just diminishing return as you get below 7%. So 7 really seems to be a really important place to get to um, to really make a dent in diabetes control. And then I just like to throw out some reference ranges um, because we talked last time a little bit about diagnostic criteria for diabetes. So an A1C of 6.5%, so that point where pre-diabetes becomes diabetes is 140 milligrams per deciliter. An A1C of 6% is 126 milligrams per deciliter. 
An A1C of 5.7, which is the point we diagnose prediabetes, is 117 milligrams per deciliter. An A1C of 5.5 is 111. An A1C of 5 is about 96 milligrams per deciliter. So you don't have to memorize those, but it is helpful to kind of just get a sense when you see an A1C what somebody's average blood sugar might be running. Um, and there is on like MD Calc and some of those other web calculators something where you can play with basically to convert an A1C to an average blood sugar. And we'll link to that out on the website. Now, as folks get older, um, those targets can become more permissive beyond 7% because the absolute benefit of tight, tight control is basically lessened at that point. Um, and really, when we focus on treatment, we also not just want to focus on the blood sugar, but focus on things that predispose to cardiovascular disease alongside diabetes. So even though we want to focus in on the diabetes, we also want to make sure that patients are quitting smoking, they're reducing their lipids with statin therapy, they're starting out on the diet, exercise, and weight loss plans, basically to, again, improve the metabolic uh, milieu, if you will. And then we check A1Cs about every three to six months in chronic diabetes, and many patients will engage with some form of glucose checking. Obviously, with insulin therapy, there's a risk of hypoglycemia that's pretty significant. So those patients really should be checking their sugars with either a continuous glucose monitor or finger sticks. But with most type 2 diabetes, self-monitoring of blood glucose on a daily basis is really not necessary, um, but it may be motivational or beneficial for some patients, basically giving them data to help with those lifestyle interventions. And then remember, our targets for therapy in pregnancy specifically, we just want to throw those out there because you are going to track blood sugars for these patients. A fasting blood sugar should be 95 or better. A one-hour postprandial should be 140 or better. Or alternatively, you may measure a two-hour postprandial, and that should be 120 or better. All right, so that was a lot of background, Faye, on treatment goals and some of the other things that we don't always focus on. Um, another thing that we don't always focus on maybe as well as we should with our patients is really the first step of diabetes control. What is that? Yeah, so that's lifestyle changes, right? And I think like you said, Nick, we don't always focus on this, but really all patients with new diabetes should receive intensive education regarding things like nutrition and diet and weight management, as well as exercise and the potential role of even surgical therapy um, if they are overweight or obese with a BMI of greater than 35. The diagnosis of diabetes can be a quote-unquote wake-up call for many patients who may have otherwise been in denial, and we really should take advantage of this to help them achieve new, healthier goals. So we'll kind of break this down um, into a few categories. So the first is going to be nutrition, diet, and weight loss. And we really should be focusing on consistency and carb intake, um, trying to avoid weight gain and balance nutrition. Um, and despite the importance of weight loss, few patients really are able to achieve and sustain substantial weight loss um, on their own. But we know that these benefits of weight loss are seen even at a 5 to 10% um, weight loss from their original weight. Uh, but most significant is when they lose more than 15% of their original weight. Um, 
Caloric restriction can also be helpful in resolving diabetes. So there was a trial called the DIRECT trial, um, where in those patients with type 2 diabetes uh, for less than six years and for those who are not on insulin, those who are randomized to intensive supervised caloric restriction versus usual care showed that 24% of the therapy group had lost 15 kilograms or more body weight at the first year versus 0% of usual care. And this was only maintained by 11%, unfortunately, in the intervention group at two years. Um, But 46% of the therapy group, importantly, had resolved diabetes at the one-year mark versus the 4% in the control group. And this was actually still maintained by 36% versus 3% at the two-year follow-up. So this just really does illustrate how important diet nutrition can be. The next is exercise. So we know that regardless of whether or not you have diabetes, regardless of whether or not you want to lose weight, regular exercise is beneficial and it can also delay or even reverse the progression of prediabetes to type 2 diabetes. The current recommendation is 30 to 60 minutes of moderate intensity aerobic activity um, where you where you're at 40 to 60% of your VO2 max on most days of the week. So usually this recommendation is about 150 minutes per week and not skipping more than two days in a row. And then also resistance training at least twice per week. The last thing that we can also consider for weight loss is surgical weight loss um, and results uh, in the largest degree of sustained weight loss in those with type 2 diabetes and obesity. And this is really appropriate for those patients who have a BMI of 40 or greater or those who have a BMI of greater than 35 when hyperglycemia is inadequately managed by lifestyle measures and optimal medical therapy. And then the last thing in terms of lifestyle changes I think that we should mention is this emotional support and psychotherapy because many patients with um, type 2 diabetes or even prediabetes can suffer from depression concurrently, which can, of course, interfere with self-care and motivation. And so psychotherapy can improve some measures of diabetes management as well as glycemic control based on one meta-analysis of 12 trials. All right, so we've highlighted the lifestyle changes that can be beneficial for diabetes, Nick. But, you know, let's say your patient is doing everything right in terms of lifestyle changes, but they still need to be on some form of medication. So, first of all, talk to me about when do we start it? What kind of medications do we start? And of course, you know, what are all the medications out there that are available? Absolutely. So, first question that you asked, Faye, is when to start therapy. Um, And really, the ADA actually advises to start therapy right away with the diagnosis of the diabetes if someone's A1C is greater than 7.5% to 8%. And you're doing that alongside encouraging those lifestyle interventions. If you have a highly motivated patient who's near that 7.5% mark, it's reasonable to trial three to six months of lifestyle modification before starting therapy. Um, but again, they're actually pretty aggressive with saying you should start pharmacologic therapy pretty much straight away. Medications to start for most patients, metformin that we're very familiar with, I think is a very reasonable first option. Um, But more and more frequently, metformin is getting kind of some sidekicks alongside it. Um, And even in some cases, metformin is getting replaced by some newer therapies. Based on your patient's initial A1C, the patient's comorbid conditions, and tolerance of certain side effects, this is really going to be an individualized decision. And honestly, though we're OBGYNs and we kind of are a jack of all trades with 
kind of care. Um, this is likely best decided by folks with medicine expertise. So usually the patient's PCP or an endocrinologist. Um, though if you are seeing patients in a primary care capacity, you might be kind of writing for some of these meds or potentially writing for these meds as folks transition out of pregnancy care back to um, their non-pregnant state, if you will. So this next part is going to get kind of dense, I'll admit, um, because there's a lot of medications. And Faye, I think that even since we took step one and step two, um, this kind of world of diabetes medications has just exploded. Why don't we start off, though, with sort of what we know, um, which I think is just the good old standby metformin. Sure. Yeah. So metformin is probably something that we are all familiar with. So metformin is a biguanide medication that is the standby of type 2 diabetes therapy um, because it's inexpensive, it's efficacious at reducing hyperglycemia, it can promote modest weight loss, it's usually well tolerated. And so this is a really good first-line choice for most patients, um, but specifically there are some contraindications, and this in- can include GI intolerance, um, and but this can improve with slower titration or the XR formulations, for example. And you can also ask patients to take it with food to hopefully decrease that nausea, vomiting, diarrhea that a lot of patients can get with this. The other contraindication is chronic kidney disease or end-stage renal disease with a GFR of less than 30 because there is concern for development of lactic acidosis. And then the last is hepatic impairment where there's a risk of hepatotoxicity and lactic acidosis. In terms of pregnancy and reproductive considerations, of course, because we are OBGYNs, um, it's often an excellent choice in pregnancy or in those deciding to become pregnant because metformin can promote weight loss, it can lower A1C and the risk of fetal anomalies, and appears to be safe to continue in pregnancy, though, of course, it does cross the placenta. And long-term studies, meaning looking at long-term studies of the baby, um, have not necessarily been done. The second class of medications that I'll talk a little bit more about, because I think these medications are starting to become more sexy, so to speak, Mm -hmm. are the GLP-1 or the glucagon-like peptide 1 agonists. And these include medications that you may have heard like liraglutide, semaglutide, dulaglutide, for example. Um, So these medications will bind GLP-1 receptors, which are present in the pancreatic cells, gastric mucosa, and elsewhere. And the overall effects include things like stimulating glucose-dependent insulin release from the pancreas, slowing gastric emptying, inhibiting post-meal glucagon release, and reducing food intake and appetite. And it's a great choice alone or as in combination with metformin in patients where weight loss is really desired. And um, you guys have probably heard of semaglutide being in the news lately, which is you know, the brand name Ozempic, which has mostly been used for weight loss because it seems like all the celebrities are using it for that purpose. But uh, the other reason why it is actually great is because it can also be used in patients with significant renal impairment, unlike metformin. And overall, there are very low rates of hypoglycemia. However, it is contraindicated in those with a history of pancreatitis um, because uh, there are some reports post-marketing of hemorrhagic and non-hemorrhagic pancreatitis associated with this. And predominantly, these are injectable medications, so patients do have to be comfortable learning how to inject a sub-Q medication. In terms of pregnancy and reproductive considerations, there's really limited data on exposures, and so it's really not recommended for use prior to or during pregnancy, which can be a downfall to this. So we do recommend that patients to discontinue this um, for two months or more prior to pregnancy, and there's really not a lot of breastfeeding data either. 
Okay, Nick, so those are kind of two of our medications that we can use. What are some other ones? Yeah, so another one that you may have seen in your gynecology practice and is a more common one in diabetes are the SGLT2 inhibitors. So uh, empiclavagosin, canagliflozin, and dapagliflozin. Um, I probably horribly butchered those names. They all end in gliflozin, basically, um, and the spellings will be on the website. So don't try and interpret what I'm saying, basically. Um, but as the name implies, these inhibit an SGL2 receptor in the proximal tubule of the nephron. So this is a receptor that is important for reabsorbing glucose alongside sodium. So this basically promotes renal excretion of glucose. This is generally considered an adjunctive therapy as opposed to an initial or first-line therapy, but can be combined alongside metformin and really is a nice adjunctive therapy choice in patients with type 2 diabetes who have normal or only mild impairment in their kidney function, who are not meeting their goals with other first-line agents, um, or who have other significant comorbidities like cardiovascular disease. Now, these SGLT2 inhibitors do have a little bit higher rate of hypoglycemia than the other meds that Faye mentioned, and so initially you need to monitor some fasting and pre-meal glucoses after starting just to make sure that the patient's tolerated okay. In terms of contraindications, these should not be used in patients with type 1 diabetes, chronic kidney disease with a GFR estimated less than 30 to 45 or so, and any patient with a history of prior DKA. Now, why do we say DKA specifically? Well, no, you're peeing out glucose, so more water comes out too. So these patients actually can get dehydrated initially too. So if any patient is on an SGLT2 inhibitor and they've got nausea, vomiting, malaise, kind of like a DKA picture, obtain ketones, have the patient discontinue therapy until they can be evaluated. Um, again, use with caution in patients who are on diuretics or other meds that may predispose to kidney injury because of this issue with dehydration. Now, in terms of pregnancy and reproductive health considerations, again, the way that this works is by excreting glucose through the urine. And so you're going to get glucosuria. Some patients with this may be more prone to genitourinary candida infections because of the presence of all the extra glucose that's down there, basically. So you need to monitor patients for this, and you may have to communicate with PCPs if patients are coming back for recurrent bacterial UTIs or GU fungal infections, and even consider discontinuing these medications if they become a big issue. These are not recommended in pregnancy. Um, in animal studies, there have been adverse renal effects on the fetus, so not recommended. Um, and then surprise, surprise, there is no breastfeeding data for these either. Another one that probably in some places may be a little more familiar are the sulfonylurea medications. So these are glipizide, gliburide, and glimipiride as the most common three. Um, the way that these work is they bind actually to an ATP potassium channel in the pancreatic beta cells. So it lowers the activation potential of the beta cell and they're increasingly responsive to calcium. So again, it basically helps the cell to release more insulin more readily. These sulfonylureas can be considered if there are contraindications specifically to metformin, and they may be useful in some forms of MODI specifically. Often these get used though in combination with metformin again. These should not be combined with insulin because sulfonylureas do have a pretty high incidence of hypoglycemia. Um, and so in terms of contraindications, again, if a patient's prone to hypoglycemia, you shouldn't use these. 
Glibiride needs to be avoided in CKD, but you can use glipizide in chronic kidney disease. Um, and then sulfonylureas, unlike the other agents we've mentioned so far, doesn't seem to have any cardiovascular benefit. So other agents are preferred if a patient has cardiovascular disease. Now, for pregnancy and reproductive considerations with sulfonylureas, um, we actually once used sulfonylureas in pregnancy, but now we've largely discontinued this. You may find some pockets of practice that still use these as alternative oral agents to metformin, though. Some sulfonylureas, gliburide and glipizide specifically, actually persist and can be metabolically active in newborns for four to 10 days after delivery. And basically that predisposes the infant to hypoglycemia if they're exposed near delivery. Um, and obviously we don't want to send a baby home and then get hypoglycemic at home and deal with the consequences of that. So if your patient is on a sulfonylurea, the advice from the ADA and ACOG is to discontinue these agents for at least two weeks prior to delivery. But again, these are no longer preferred in pregnancy for that reason. Um, sulfonylureas, though, can be used in breastfeeding. There's really limited passage overall into breast milk. And so if a patient needs to transition to a sulfonylurea for type 2 after delivery, that is okay. All right, we have a couple more medications we want to go through, Faye. And these are kind of rarer and probably a little less encountered in routine practice. Sure. So the first class we'll talk about here are the DPP-4 inhibitors or the dipeptidyl peptidase 4 inhibitors. And all of these medications end in glyptin. So linagliptin, saxagliptin, alogliptin, etc. Essentially, endogenous DPP-4 deactivates GLP-1. So in principle, these medications work like the GLP-1 agonists, but increase endogenous supply rather than providing exogenous stimulation. Um, and the effects on GLP-1 activity, though, are much more modest than the actual GLP-1 agonist medications. Generally, these are used as some type of add-on therapy in patients who need additional glucose lowering as they don't have protective cardiac or renal effects compared to other agents. And so these are usually combined with other medications like metformin, the thiazolidinediones, which of course I don't think I'm pronouncing correctly and we'll talk about in just a second, sulfonylureas, basal insulin, and or those SGL2 inhibitors. Um, the contraindications for these medications are a history of pancreatitis, liver disease for some agents because it can worsen that, as well as it can possibly worsen heart failure for some patients. Again, in terms of pregnancy and reproductive considerations, there's really limited data in pregnancy and reproduction, and so these are not necessarily recommended. And then the last class here that we're going to talk about are that really hard to pronounce um, class of medications that all end in glitazone, and they're called thiazolidinediones. And these work by acting on adipose and muscular tissue to increase glucose utilization, but actually the mechanism for these, for these medications are not really well understood. And again, this is also generally an add-on therapy, and it may rarely be used initially in patients with contraindications to other medications like metformins and sulfonylureas, um, and those who decline injectable SGLT2 inhibitors. There are many contraindications, and that includes things like heart failure, fluid overload, history of a fracture, or those who are at high risk of fracture, so for those who have osteoporosis, for example, um, those with active liver disease, active or prior history of bladder cancer, pregnancy, and macular edema. 
And again, you know, we said pregnancy and reproductive considerations. If these medications are used in reproductive age patients, weight loss and improvement in glycemic control has been shown to cause actually ovulation in those patients who are anovulatory, and this can potentially lead to unintended pregnancy. Um, there is limited pregnancy and breastfeeding data, but the medication actually does cross the placenta, and so it's really not recommended for use. And then finally, of course, we have insulin, but we're not going to talk about that this time around. We're going to talk about that actually in our next episode. And you know, all of these medications, Nick, I think is a little bit confusing to listen to. So we are going to be putting a table on our website for all of our listeners to kind of take a look at if they want to re-review this. So I think that brings us to the end of this episode. Nick, why don't we go ahead and summarize? Yeah. So again, we started off talking about the treatment goals for the chronic diabetes. And a general target to start to is an A1C of 7% or less, corresponding to an average glucose of 154. This is where you kind of start to get diminishing returns for every 1% drop in A1C in those microvascular outcomes. Treatment goals also need to align to help other comorbid conditions that predispose to cardiovascular disease. And then patients ultimately should have an A1C checked approximately every three to six months, and or they should engage with some form of glucose checking, though typically patients who are at risk of hypoglycemia or who are pregnant um, or have type 1 diabetes are going to be the ones where you're going to be using CGMs or finger sticks most frequently. In terms of treatment, lifestyle changes are very important for diabetes control, and this involves multiple things like nutrition, diet, and weight loss education, exercise, potentially even surgical weight loss for certain patients, as well as emotional support and psychotherapy. You should start pharmacologic therapy for the treatment of diabetes if an A1C is 75 to 8% alongside lifestyle interventions, and in highly motivated patients with an A1C near 7.5, you could trial lifestyle interventions alone before starting meds. Most patients can start off with metformin as a first-line option, and it's a really good choice for patients with the specific contraindications, ultimately, of the GI intolerance, which can improve over time with slow titration or XR formulations, Patients with chronic kidney disease or end-stage renal disease because of the concern for development of lactic acidosis, and patients who have hepatic impairment. Again, metformin is also one that can be used during pregnancy, um, though it does cross the placenta. We then talked about other medications like GLP-1 agonists, and these include things like liraglutide and semiglutide. Overall, this is going to stimulate glucose-dependent insulin release from the pancreas, and it can also reduce food intake because it will decrease appetite. It's a great choice alone or in combination with metformin, but it shouldn't be used in patients with a history of pancreatitis, and it is an injectable medication, so it needs so patients must learn how to inject a sub-Q medication. It is also not recommended in pregnancy and should be discontinued more than two months prior to pregnancy. The next class of medications were those SGLT2 inhibitors. They end in gliflozin. Um, again, this basically promotes urinary excretion of glucose and can be used as an adjunctive therapy alongside metformin in patients with good kidney um, function. Again, these are contraindicated in patients with type 1 diabetes, those with poor kidney function, a GFR of less than 30 to 45, and a history of prior ketoacidosis. Again, that extra glucose coming out of the urine makes these patients prone to dehydration. And so if a patient does have symptoms of DKA, they need to discontinue the medication 
you should obtain ketones and encourage the patient to be evaluated. In terms of pregnancy and reproductive considerations, again, that glucosuria may make patients more prone to UTIs and candidal genitourinary infections. They are not recommended in pregnancy and are, have no breastfeeding data. Next, we talked about sulfonylureas. These are medications like glipizide, gliburide, or glimepiride. These medications work by increasing the responsiveness of pancreatic beta cells, um, leading to increased insulin. Uh, these medications, unfortunately, should be are contraindicated in those patients with chronic kidney disease. There's really no demonstrated cardiovascular benefit, and it can increase hypoglycemia in patients who are more prone to it. It used to be used in pregnancy, but overall, it has been found that it can increase the risk of hypoglycemia if there is exposure near the time of delivery. And so in those who are still using these types of medications in pregnancy, the recommendation is to discontinue at least two weeks prior to delivery. It can also be used in breastfeeding as there's limited passage into the milk. Finally, we talked about the DPP-4 inhibitors that end in glyptin, as well as what I'm going to call the TZT, TZDs that end in glitazone. Again, we're going to have a big table on our website going through all of these medications. So through our summary today, I won't go through those once again, um, but do check out the website for the notes as well as the hopefully that helpful table. All right, I think that does it for today. So once again, this is Nick. This is Faye. And this has been Creogs Over Coffee. So guys, if you enjoyed this episode, go ahead and go into your favorite podcatcher, Google Play, Spotify, iTunes. Give us a five-star rating and review. You can find us online on Twitter at CreagsOverCoffee One, on Instagram and Facebook at CreagsOverCoffee, or if you love the show, head over to patreon.com slash CreagsOverCoffee. Send us some love and we'll send you some swag. You can find show notes for this show as well as all of our other episodes, as well as the Rosh Review Question of the Week on our website, www.creagsOverCoffee.com. And finally, if you have a question for us, a correction to this or any of our prior episodes, or just want to say hi, email us, craigsovercoffee at gmail.com. Mm-hmm.